Okay, back on the horse again today to talk about a warrior dynasty. The rise and fall of Sweden as a military superpower, 1611 to 1721, by Henrik Olund. Um, so this guy is a Norwegian guy who basically wrote this book because he uh, he thought that the uh, Thirty Years' War just didn't get um, as much... Uh, as much coverage or as much prominence uh, as tons of, uh, I guess, the war of Spanish succession was taking place at the same time. And that basically sucks all of the air out of the room. Uh, as far as uh, historians are concerned, uh, and it's like the only thing they focus on. And he just, there wasn't, um, there was books, I guess, in Swedish and I don't know, maybe German or something, but there wasn't that many books that covered this in English. Um, and I guess it was tricky because you would need to maybe read those different languages or more languages than a normal historian. I don't know. Yeah, that maybe I may, might be making that up. But uh, yeah, so I uh, am actually in Sweden right now as a type of a, a quarantine bit, and so I'm uh, around my in-laws, and uh, they are all very interested in uh, in Sweden's history, and uh, they refer uh, often to the idea that uh, we shouldn't have let Norway have their freedom we should and, and, and let them have the oil and I'll be and they make it sound like it happened in like 1975 when um, I forget when it happened but I mean it happened I don't know in the 1800s I don't know I'll have to, you'll have to google that yourself if you want the exact answer but um, yeah so this is about the 30 years war and primarily uh, Gustavus Adolphus and um, Charles Twelfth, and the guy actually makes, the author makes an argument that even though uh, Charles Twelfth gets a lot more hype, actually Gustavus Adolphus is one of the biggest, uh, Gustavus, Gustavus, Gustav II Adolphus, Gustavus Adolphus, from uh, 1611 to 1632 he was king. He makes the argument that this guy is uh, really important in history and that the Thirty Years' War that Sweden had, I guess, primarily on the Baltic and with Germany, is was actually more important on forming the world that we know today, um, because it involves uh, Russia and uh, how Russia came out of it, and I guess maybe united against Sweden and uh, and Germany, and just basically all the all the big players are still around. I mean, I guess except for Sweden. Uh, <laughs> Um, compared to uh, compared to the war, Spanish succession. Uh, the it, right out of the gun, the most interesting uh, first note I have is that in the 1960s, a survey of Germans placed the Thirty Years' War as the worst thing to happen in the country's history over World War One, World War Two, the Holocaust, and the Black Death. So maybe you know if you don't if you didn't care before, maybe I, mean, I don't know if that can uh, convince you to to care about this, um, but. Uh, and then, like I said, greater importance in the war of Spanish succession because it gave rise to Russia and Prussia. Uh, and then there's just lots of little tidbits in here. I, he felt like he came out firing. Uh, I have, let's see, I've, I've listened to uh, Ghosts of Cannae, which is about Hannibal's Battle of Cannae. And I've listened to a book on Waterloo and... Um, so, but I'm not probably um, as much up on European history as like whatever the average uh, 
60-year-old European male or something like that that just kind of uh, touch in different areas. Uh, but needless, but even with that said, I, I got through this book uh, extremely quickly and really enjoyed it. And if you have any interest in Sweden or... Yeah, not that you'd have to have interest in Sweden to enjoy this. I, then I, would, I would say, yeah, definitely pick it up. There's not, I didn't think there was very much filler at all. It just um, went quite quickly. Uh, but so anyhow, uh, Sweden was it was kind of its own, not in its own little world, but it was it was its own little kingdom. It was its own, it was an empire in, in the north uh, uh, to the extent that uh, their calendar was out of step with the Julian and the Gregorian calendar from 1700 to 1740. Uh, I thought it was interesting, and that goes into Sweden. Unlike other Nordics, had actually had elected leaders. This is before they had a king. So this is going back, I guess, uh, way back before. It must be in the eight hundreds or something. Because it looks like we have the the Munso dynasty, and it was the first one that started out started the ball rolling here, and the embracement of Christianity, but. Uh, they had they had elected leaders and then also thus continuous civil war and um, they had the draft i guess an obligatory military service and all freedmen and had the right to bear arms but that was before the, the king came into into play uh, the author mentions that sometimes sweden would take up crusades to finland <laughs> which i thought was a funny expression um uh, pardon my sniffles uh the uh, but basically by the time the 13th century came around, the the king needed mercenaries, so he taxed the farmers, and then the revenue from the farmers was used to pay the mercenaries, which kept the farmers in line, and uh, thus we have modern history, I guess. Uh, Margaret was uh, the most. This is let's see when did she come into play here? I've got this nice. Nice map in front of me that I think I found on uh, on the a Swedish Reddit. Uh, well, anyhow, I can't I can't seem to find her quickly, but uh, she was uh, one of the most far-sighted Scandinavian monarchs. Uh, she wanted to unify Scandinavia and eliminate the Hansa League, which um, I don't know if they talk about the Hansa League in. The crying of Lot pensions the crying of Lot forty nine or not? Um, I forget. Are they are they the ones that had the mail uh, network? Uh, but I definitely know there's lots of uh, German family board games that uh, revolve around the Hansa League. Anyhow, uh, she saw the great need, which is it's just interesting. That these independent kind of like. Uh, trade unions they weren't even like really companies they were more like trade union type of things could have, have such dominance in uh in europe around around that time it would be it would, that would be something that would be interesting to uh to get a to uh pocket audio listen to the wikipedia entry of now that i think about it uh uh but yeah so she wanted to eliminate the hansa league and the three countries Within Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, because I guess maybe Finland was part of Sweden at this time. I don't know. Uh, we're supposed to be independent with within, independent um, and together on foreign matter. Independent within and then together on foreign matters. But she, 
she was so far sighted that she put too many Germans and Danes as the heads of, of different areas in Sweden, and uh, Sweden decided it wanted its independence. Uh, so there's a thing, a big thing that all my relatives apparently know about, and I'm not, I guess all Swedes probably know about, called the Stockholm Bloodbath. And that was when uh, the king uh, that had won independence killed was killed, and uh, the nobles were made to swear allegiance to Denmark. And then they were promptly declared heretics and executed in the square in uh, Stockholm, 82 of them. So that I, I forget what they said, but it, it wiped out like a third or like two thirds or something of, of Swedish nobles in one go. It was it was a large percentage. It might not have been that large, but it was large. Uh, so yeah, so uh, Gustav the First, who was the predecessor, so it's going to go Gustav the First, and then I guess Charles the Fourth, and then Gustav the Second. But Gustav the First, his grandfather, was the first to uh, put tax on foreign trade, mining, uh, start bookkeeping. And uh, basically increased the power of the crown by going Protestant. In 1500, the church had 21% of the land and the crown had 5%. So uh, that really made it an easy decision to, uh, to get out of Catholicism and get that land. And so then, uh, uh, yeah, after after that, the, the, they got, obviously, they, it, it went up even uh, above the total 26. Um and so once the king had that much more power, he was able to whittle away at the nobles' land and give more land to the peasants, uh, which you would think would be oh, uh, just a uh, altruistic move on his part. But no, he can, if it's in the hands of the peasants, then he can um, tax them as opposed, I guess he can't tax the nobles. And uh, that led to Sweden having the first standing army in Europe. Uh, there was lots of wars with Poland, which was a Hansa town, uh, um, but uh, the yeah. So basically, it says a uh, whatever that uh, Carl lost all of Johann's games. I have in my notes here, but that doesn't make any sense to me now. When they're fighting with Poland, it's interesting because uh, in a book I'm going to review uh, very soon, "Disunited Nations" by Peter Zihan, a uh, Ex Stratfor guy, he projects that in the future, Poland and Sweden will, uh, basically kind of like form an alliance. Basically, he sees he sees the EU breaking down and basically uh, the United States withdrawing, and basically everyone is kind of like reduced to um, who they were friends with, like I don't know, like a hundred years ago, or who they had interactions with, who they can trust. Basically, old, and so he's saying that I guess that. Poland is kind of stuck in the middle between Germany and Russia, and they would never make an alliance with either one of them. Uh, but that Sweden would, would uh, because of their Baltic Sea connection, would want to um, start an alliance with Poland. So I think that, that is just interesting. He brought up this character, Maurice of Nassau, Nass Maurice of Nass Nassau, Nassau, like the island, uh, slash of orange. Uh, he had a, a great influence on uh, uh, Gustav's uh, Gustav's uh, thinking militarily wise, and uh, when he was off duty, he came and uh, actually uh, trained uh, some of the Swedes. Um, 
so Gustav II, he he uh, he changed the rule that you had to be 24 to be king, and he got himself crowned at 17, and he inherited wars against Denmark, Russia, and Poland, which is kind of amazing that you could start out on that many fronts. And I, that is, this is one later on one reason why he thinks that this guy was uh, a better leader than, uh, than than the guy that I guess is more traditionally held up as Charles the Twelfth. Uh, the thing that's also interesting about this uh, Gustavus Adolphus is he just he was real hard on. Uh, he led from the front and he almost died a couple times. His horse fell through a lake and he had armor on and it almost sank and they had to really fight to pull him up. Uh, and then uh, an attack on Helsingboy in Skona. Uh, I guess I was on the way to that attack. Um, and then they, whatever they fought in gun shopping. These are all uh, names that, that I've heard of and that I know if I haven't been there. Um, and then uh, Christian from Denmark, he came over uh, when, when Gustav was just, the second was just getting started and decided to try and take over Stockholm and he landed. Uh, and uh, basically Gustav just separated a thousand troops out of his detachment and did a forced march over a uh, long, long stretch of space and was able to fend off Christian before he was even able to get very even very far from his boats, which is kind of amazing. But so the, basically the, the picture is that this is a, a, gust, uh, a determined, uh, uh, focused guy that isn't, isn't, uh, isn't scared of a fight. Uh, so he had, he basically kind of had a slow start in his first four years. Uh, there was no real hint that he would be the father of modern warfare, which is what this guy posits him as being saying that he um, only he and Genghis Khan have actually completely changed and formulated a way of fighting and then been also the person that's implemented it and used it in the field uh, so I guess normally somebody else designs it and someone else actually takes it over and, and uses it uh, let's see so we got this colonoscopy uh, Polish field marshal was his best adversary, and later he uh, got he taught Gustavus Adolphus. So that's kind of a uh, kind of a trend here is uh, very quick to maybe switch sides or or, or not afraid to to learn. Uh, again, he's just always putting himself in danger. He was on doing reconnaissance and he got shot. And uh, he has a he has a quote. He says, "My troops are poor Swedish and fish." Finnish peasants, tis true, but they will soon wear nicer clothes. Uh, uh, he uh, he improved warfare. So let's see, warfare technologies improved and spread because of. Okay, yeah. So they started drafting and training soldiers. Drafting and training soldiers was an expense when you could just hire mercenaries. They were already trained, already battle hardened, and 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 then also kind of like. Uh, you know, uh, Silicon Valley or New York as a financial center or London as a financial center. You kind of have these, um, oh gosh, what do they call them? Uh, not ecosystems, but clusters, these clusters of knowledge. And, and so basically they would, they would bring, you know, how do you make a, whatever a trebuchet or probably weren't using trebuchets, but whatever, whatever siege 
technologies or armor or mus latest musket type of techniques, uh, they, the mercenaries would just bring that. So there's a kind of a very uh, fast transfer of knowledge as opposed to raising your own army domestically and then not only having to train them, but trying to stay at the, the front edge of, um, of te technology. Uh, so basically, um, the cavalry was, uh, was going down and, uh, the, the infantry in the Spanish square, uh, which kind of resembled a, a Greek flanx, uh, with, and it had with but with pikes and firearms, was was ruling the day. Uh, so it would have um, it would have uh, three thousand men, pikemen in the center, and musketeers on the flanks. Which I, I don't I, I don't I, I don't understand this. I guess that after the musketeers would fire, the pikemen would come out in front of the musketeers, or if the musketeers were going to get charged by cavalry, then the the pikemen would come out. Um, it was inflexible, but it dominated the battles of battlefields of Europe for a century, which is which is not nothing. Uh, so Maurice and Nassau improved the Spanish Square, and made it smaller, and was able to and got it so it could fight on any terrain. Uh, but the flanks uh, were were still vulnerable. Gustav basically uh, took that, and his improvements reigned until. Uh, the French Revolution. Um, no, sorry, Gustav was the one that made it smaller and made a fight on any terrain. Um, uh, the, 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 the only, yeah, as I said before, he was the only captain who actually won on the battlefield using his own inventions. There's a long list of his improvements. Basically, he made the Swedish musket uh, lighter. And I think there was something with the flintlock. Uh, and then he made packaged bullets, like that already had the powder in there. I don't know if they're waterproof. I don't necessarily think they were waterproof, but basically uh, it allowed it to, like, I think, fire like three times faster. And they had this little thing called the Swedish feather, which was, was they still needed a, a kind of like a tripod or a mount for this musket, but they made it. Uh, lighter and it could also be used as like a, a pike to protect protect the musketeers from the cavalry um but that but the i guess that he he gets technical and he gets specific with these, with these different uh different improvements um what else so yeah he yeah he made he made the squares smaller and he just made them more flexible um uh, let's see he uh <laughs> He was the first to make uh, artillery a disciplined, distinct unit. It sounds like, sounds like before this, the artillery were just like uh, kind of the boys in the back, uh, just kind of doing their own thing, and nobody asked any questions because nobody, nobody knew what they were doing. Anyhow, I don't know, maybe like your company's financial modeler or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, so they. <laughs> I don't know why I think this is so funny. I guess it's just because I can just envision this that the, he had the, he had the he had the the foresight to say like this is an absolutely critical uh, aspect of the army that we can't just um, let go to seed and do whatever they want. So um, a disciplined, distinct unit with a better powder charge allowed thinner and lighter barrels. Uh, big emphasis on mobility and, and like I said, and the charges already being prepared, which obviously would make them be able to fire in faster succession. Um, and, uh, 
and yeah, and and just with the, with that increased mobility, they were able to do things that weren't previously thought of by kids. Maybe I I, I, I like like I said I liked this book, so I just have the loads of uh, loads of notes, which uh, may or may not be uh, interesting for me to rattle off. But I'm gonna keep going. He, he was an he was Gus Davis was unusual because he kept a clean camp, no whores. And uh, the wife and family uh, could trail the army, and so they actually had regimental schools. And this somehow reduced the baggage train. You would think it would increase the baggage train um, to not have uh, to have families, but in, I guess in families in place of just kind of a uh, loose assemblage of things that maybe people could get do without. Um, so that's interesting. He's really kind of it's a very um, much a, everything from the muskets to the artillery to the supply train uh, holistic approach. Uh, so basically, Sweden entered the Thirty Years' War to keep the Habsburgs off the Baltic coast. That was the main. That was the main reason. Um, I just want to sip on my sparkling water here. So that that was the main reason. It's always, I guess, said that the number one reason was to defend Protestantism, but that he's saying that wasn't really the case. Uh, entering the Thirty Years' War took confidence. Sweden alone against the entire Austrian Empire. Um, all of their allies were busy fighting in other places, and the only thing. That uh, the only thing that helped, and this is this is what's actually this is one of the more interesting aspect things in the book that he points out is because you would think that this Protestant empire who's fighting the Habsburgs and they're always oh, fighting it for Protestantism and the Habsburgs are Catholic Germans, um, and um, Britain Britain is busy I guess with Spain, uh, so they can't really help them. I, don't, I forget who their I forget who their other allies were, but basically the only help they got was money from Catholic France, which is like what? But Catholic, in Catholic France, and I guess Cardinal Richelieu, straight from the Three Musketeers, what he was thinking was that he couldn't have the Habsburgs get too big. Too big. They were already they were already too big and too powerful, and if they took over Scandinavia, then they would be I guess threatened France. So. So yeah, so France actually gave Sweden cold hard cash, uh, and then this very interesting guy. This would be another guy to now write down in my notes. I I, I had before, but again, uh, to Wikipedia, Wallens Wallenstein. Um, so that's Wallenstein and the Hansa League. That uh, for homework. Um, Wallenstein was by far the best opposing general that Gustavus would face, but he was so brutal that they like sent him away. Uh, he's just a real, uh, I mean, he must have been awful. Uh, his own, his own uh, side, even though he was by far the best. I guess maybe they, I don't know what they attributed their success to something else. But anyhow, uh, yeah, so and Gustavus Adolphus, he was just, he was, I have in my notes here, he was a sign of national adventure. Can you I mean, think of anything better? Uh, maybe not for the health of the country, but anything more fun than the leader being a sign of national adventure and a call to adventure. Um, 
let's see, first major battle versus Tilly. Uh, the Swedish artillery was hurt. Uh, or the Swedish artillery hurt the Imperial Habsburg's clumped forces, uh, and the Swedes were more spread out, so the, the, artillery, the opposing artillery couldn't have the same effect. Uh, I think they learned uh, quickly from that, though. Um, so now we get into one of the major, the biggest battle in the book, I guess, or the one of two. The battle of uh, Breitenfeld, uh, which I think was uh, close to Augsburg, which I have been to in Germany. Uh, but uh, anyhow, they cap. So this is interesting. They captured the Imperial guns, and then they captured the Habsburgs' artillery, and then used those artillery and fired on uh, the retreating <laughs> the retreating forces. Can you imagine getting shot at with your own cannon? That would really suck. It's like, uh, that made me think, like, okay, that's what they're always talking about, uh, spiking the guns. You know, I think, like, if in whatever, Master and Commander or something like that, that, that era, when they were going to jump off the ship and abandon ship or something they would um i don't know what they do they block up the block up the mouth of the cannon or something or, or or crack the crack the cannons or something anyhow somehow spike the cannons and at an earlier point when they're getting uh taken over or somebody's getting taken over to the danes or something like that they push their cannons in the in the lake so uh so yeah it's a, a, another variation on that but yeah um so that was a huge. Anyhow, I'm skipping over the entire battle. I think if you, if you Google it, you can kind of see how, um, how, how they, um, how they approached it. There's a printout in the book, which um, isn't necessarily. It it has a where everybody's different lined up and, and things like that. I, I, I don't know if this is the battle. That they where he did a um, a double envelopment. No, I think that's the Battle of Lecht coming up, in April fifteenth, sixteen thirty-two. So this Battle of Breitenfeld is on September seventeenth, sixteen thirty-one. And uh, yeah, so this this was the turning point of the Thirty Years' War. Um, and then it just goes into a bit. Uh, basically after this, they were, you know, they were, I guess they were freaked. They were freaked out. He compares it to Hannibal, uh, beating the Romans at the battle of Cannae and basically having nothing between Rome, uh, between Rome and him and him. So, uh, and then also saying that the reaction of Gustavus Adolphus is also, uh, maybe could be faulted. He maybe made some of the same mistakes that, that Hannibal made. When thinking that it would be better to uh, kind of chop away at whatever the supply lines or terrorize the countryside, kind of like instead of just marching straight on the capital. Um, but uh, I have in my notes here that Wallenstein was a uh, just a very like interesting um, prepper type authoritarian in his own duchy that he had been given. Um, he, uh, he, he, he just like, he made it like completely self-sufficient and rigorously trained his own little army in his duchy and just was like, yeah, he was like, if he was around today, he would have been a big, 
prepper because he just uh, you know was just really uh, thinking ahead and uh, very wanted to be very uh, independent and self sufficient. And he was so pissed at uh, the Habsburgs for benching him that he was actually considering offering uh, Gustavus Adolphus his the Swedes his services, which would have definitely changed uh, changed things. Um, so I have the Nuremberg siege. Uh, uh, defense and retreat was Gustavus Adolphus' first major setback. And then we, we skip straight to uh, Gustavus Adolphus' death. Um, I, 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 had a, I had to rewind this a couple times to figure out exactly what happened, but it sounds like his cavalry unit that he was in got overextended in some confusion uh, in the line. And, uh, yeah, basically went, went too far and then just whatever got enveloped and found themselves, uh, deep, deep in enemy territory. Uh, and, uh, it was just, uh, it was interesting is, um, the, uh, the Swedes, instead of like getting scared and quitting, they, they got angry and, uh, another general assumed command. Uh, let's see, uh, the Swedes went on to win the Battle of Kunsen, and the, even though there's a morning fog that delayed the attack, and uh, Emperor Ferdinand eventually had Wallenstein executed, uh, and he, because Wallenstein, this this was a this was a defeat of Wallenstein at the Battle of Knutsen, and um, and yeah, I can't believe I, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. So this is another Swedish general that I didn't take down to find out. Um, it must be the, the Battle of Lecht, the greatest battlefield triumph, double envelopment, because uh, they had fewer troops and uh, either no cavalry or better cal uh, less fewer less cavalry. Uh, looks like they had they had they had some they had some cavalry. Uh, and uh, yeah, so this Leonard guy was uh, then supreme commander. Um, yeah, so I think. Sorry, I think I might have skipped on to uh, to. No, that would have been the successors of um, uh, Gustavus Adolphus' successors, uh, still with this Battle of Black. Unless I've gotten my notes for when Gustavus Adolphus died wrong. Uh, forgive me. Sorry. Uh, this one has been this one has been on the back burner for a little while, and uh, uh, perfection is the enemy of of any of of ever um, recording my review of it. So I've, I've kind of tongue a little bit um just decided to just just wing it and, and do it and see how it goes and this is the this is the upshot um battle of lund one of the bloodiest in europe blah 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 i think that's just swedes and the danes uh this is an interesting thing this is martha of livonia this is a this is a side bit and so I think it's the Russians come in and attack the Habsburgs as well. Um, 
and so this uh, this Martha is taken and she was like a she was basically like a, I mean like a chambermaid or something came from a poor family and was like a chambermaid and then basically she was just a, a successive of she must have been extremely attractive or, or something about her because she just really um, became uh, a succession of powerful men's mistresses that, and she just boom 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 went straight up the chain all the way until she became uh, the king or the czar's uh, wife <laughs> became Catherine the first uh, and she I mean, what 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 the heck was going on there uh, so Carl the twelfth moving on to Carl the twelfth or Charles the twelfth apparently he decided to attack Russia in 1707 which is one of the harshest winters ever so we kind of know how how that goes um, when they were going to cross the Vistula River uh, there's a lot of it's, it, uh, they're talking about falling through the ice and so there's all kinds of um, you know attacking in Scandinavia all this attacking across the lake crossing the lake frozen lakes crossing frozen lakes uh, I guess you have uh, you know George Washington and the Sorry, was it the Battle of Trenton or what? Was, sorry, the the crossing of the Delaware. There's a lot of uh, ice, ice water, cold water uh, battle, battle stuff going on. Apparently, um, obviously it's at a different time, but I'm just saying that. Uh, so they, anyhow, when they go to cross the Vistula River, they put straw and planks in the water to strengthen the freeze. I thought that was interesting. I guess they could just poke holes uh, in one part of the river and bring. Um, uh, buckets of water and, and throw water on top. Maybe I wonder. They must have done something like that to, uh, to and then to thicken it where they actually wanted the the troops and the cavalry and everything to cross. But what's interesting, I guess, is that the betting odds for the rest of Europe when Charles the Twelfth was attacking gave Peter the Great and Russia little chance of survival. Um, but whatever, by and by, as uh, is a king. So King Carl was wounded. I think he he was also kind of an out in front type of guy. He was wounded, and at one point in one of the battles, uh, twenty one out of twenty four of his litter carriers were killed. And then he was put on a horse, and the horse was shot out from underneath him. So I mean, I think this guy was a little bit too close to the front. Do you think <laughs> he wasn't exactly up on a mountain telling guys to wave flags and and move in this direction or that direction? So so this would have been. Uh, what I'm skipping on to now is, I think, the Battle of Potolva. Uh, yeah, July 8th, 1709. And uh, so I think uh, King Carl was uh, killed, I guess, or something. No, no, he wasn't. Sorry, he wasn't killed. But anyhow, he he ran off. He, uh, he like, somehow, he, he evacuated, left, got out of there. Because uh, he, I think he got caught off, cut, cut off from the main bunch, and then chased away. And they didn't normally do this, but the Swedish troops were pulled if they wanted to fight or surrender, and they all basically said, uh, "Sure, we'll, we'll fight uh, if uh, if everybody else wants to fight." Um, but somehow that there just wasn't a general. There's no courageous leader uh, to take up where the king had fled. And so they surrendered to the Russians, and they actually had more troops 
my my no my father-in-law he he debated this point well he did not think this was true but the book made it seem like uh, there was actually more swedes than russians when it when it came down to it um that they surrendered to and, and most of the swedes and that the swedes also had fresh cavalry but just but yeah so i mean that just goes to show that if you don't have a a good leader you're you're goosed um and that those swedes never saw sweden again which uh, not even being swedish made me a little bit sad uh, and he's saying that twenty-three thousand swedes were captured from the peak of uh Charles's army, which is about forty nine thousand, uh, before I guess they started in on Russia, and Carl the Twelfth escorted away to the Ottoman Empire. Um, and he stayed, I can't believe this. I mean, this is they show, so basically there was all of these enemy countries between him and Sweden, so he stayed in Turkey for four years under, uh, and then eventually I think he was he was pressing the the Turks to. Um, to uh, fight Russia to such an extent that he was eventually put under house arrest when the Turks made a peace with Russia. And, uh, and then he kind of uh, escaped or after a scuffle went incognito with some, with some troops and, uh, and went through the unfriendly European states to get back. And then the majority of his troops that had been with him took a different route. Uh, then when he got back there, I mean, he wasn't done. He, uh, he had a failed invasion of Norway and he was hit in the head by a snap, sniper while inspecting uh, the siege trenches. Um, and so, yeah, so maybe if I can just cap this off before I sneeze. Um, this guy's saying that Gustavus, uh, Gustav Adolphus, he gets less respect than Carl XII, but uh, Gustavus Adolphus, he gave rise to the, the empire. Uh, inherited all those civil wars much uh, inherited less and inherited a much worse situation with wars going on with uh, Russia and Poland and Denmark uh, than Karl did and and he built everything up during his reign and everything just basically fell apart during Karl's reign so it's interesting that one is you know I guess he's more recent and he's the last the last great uh, fighter that they had uh, but he, yeah, so he he thinks that Gustavus should get uh, more respect than Carl and more respect in Europe and in the world. Um, I'm sure there was some more just uh, insights that weren't just direct notes out of this book that I wanted to include. Um, but I can't, I can't think of them now. So, all right, great. Talk to you later. Bye.